This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Located in the Midwest, Indiana is known for corn? Wheat, maybe? Don't look at me, I have no fucking idea. What comes to mind when someone mentions it to me is just dusty fields of emptiness with maybe a handful of cows thrown in there. A weird fact I've learned throughout my time at my day job is that Indiana's addresses are very similar to those in Utah. They're on a grid system and use numbers more often than street names. Kind of a random bit of useless information, but fuck it. Their history with capital punishment dates all the way back to 1814 when a man known only as Slaughter was hung for murder. They continued to hang their condemned for nearly a hundred years. In 1914, they introduced the electric chair. Only one more man would hang in Indiana. His name was George Barrett and he made his career in racketeering. He'd hang for murder on March 24th, 1936. The last inmate to fry for their crimes here met his maker on December 7th, 1994, exactly a month after I was born. After this, they got with the times and introduced lethal injection. Since then, 17 inmates have been put to death. There are currently eight sitting on death row, but none of them have a scheduled execution date, despite half of them already exhausting all their appeals. So grab your race car and some, you guessed it, Corn. We're heading to the crossroads of America. People who attack the vulnerable deserve a special place in hell. This first story I'm going to tell you is more than just a case of a psychopath going after someone weaker than them. It's two cases of that. Time is one of those things that really fucks us all up. We as humans grow and change and learn from our mistakes, wishing we could go back and change them. That's the shitty thing about this life. You get one shot, one linear adventure through this earth. That's it. You don't get to go back when you screw up. A phone call came into police from a woman reporting a dead body on October 9th, 1982. When the officers responded, they found 61-year-old Marjorie Johnson deceased in her apartment in Anderson. Her torn clothing was wrapped around her abdomen. Her head was bloody and beaten, and she had 13 stab wounds to her chest. These wounds were found to have been caused by a butter knife. Before her murder, Marjorie had gotten a letter from a man she knew from the Christian center she visited. This letter talked about going into the homes of elderly people and robbing them. This was pretty much the only lead the police had to work from. A 19-year-old man named Mark Weishart was arrested for Marjorie's murder. He gave a full confession. He had broken into her house to steal from her, just as his letter said he wanted to do. During the course of this burglary, he stabbed Marjorie with several different sharp objects, punched her, and hit her in the head with a whiskey bottle. What did Wiseheart get out of this? $14 and a death sentence. Oh, and it wasn't a woman who called the police to report the body. 
it was Wiseheart disguising his voice. A little less than three years after Marjorie was brutally killed in her home, another elderly woman would suffer an attack. On the morning of June 23, 1985, a newspaper boy noticed a house on fire and alerted a neighbor to call the police. He came back to the house and wanted to go in and check on the occupants, but was unable to get inside due to the flames and smoke. Firemen were able to put out the fire in about 30 minutes. When the flames were extinguished, they went inside and found the body of 82-year-old Ruby Hutzler right by the front door. An autopsy would show that she died, not of smoke inhalation or the fire itself, but from a brutal beating she had received prior to her house being set alight. She had sustained a broken nose, a broken cheekbone, 20 fractured ribs, spinal fractures, and a fractured larynx. This poor old woman suffered a hell of a beating. Police didn't have to look far for their suspect. An intoxicated man was seen watching the firefighters put out the blaze. They arrested him for public intoxication. This man was suspected of starting several other fires in the area. Must be one of those weird-ass motherfuckers that gets off on watching things burn. The man was identified as 20-year-old Gregory Johnson. He initially denied involvement in this crime, but admitted to starting four other fires in the surrounding area. At a later interrogation, he was asked if his reason for killing Ruby was that he wanted to be on death row with his friend, Mark Wisehart, who he had testified against in a capital murder trial. Johnson became emotional and gave a full confession to what he had done to Ruby. He had broken into her house by smashing her front window with a broom handle. The 90-pound woman was met by this absolute brute of a man who knocked her to the floor and stepped on her repeatedly as he moved around her house in search of valuables. He managed to find a watch and some silver dollars, and a matchbook, which he used to set her house on fire before fleeing. Johnson was found guilty of brutalizing this poor woman and sentenced to death. Johnson eventually tried for a clemency hearing, and I'm kind of blown away by this one honestly. He wanted to donate part of his liver to his sister, who was very sick and needed a transplant. She'd been diagnosed with diabetes and had managed to keep it under control for a long time until she fell and broke her back. Her doctors determined that she had a non-alcoholic type of hepatitis and that her best chance at survival would be to get a liver transplant. As you may be aware, siblings are often some of the first people tested for compatibility in organ transplants. Johnson knew he was a dead man regardless and wanted to use his liver to possibly save his sister. The only problem with this is that lethal injection renders the liver and kidneys unusable. Johnson asked if he could instead be electrocuted, but this request was unlikely to be approved because Indiana no longer had the necessary equipment to carry out electrocutions. Unfortunately for Johnson and his sister, his request to be an organ donor was denied. Gregory Scott Johnson was executed by lethal injection on May 25, 2005. He had accepted his fate, and his mother was the only person who didn't want to let him go. 
Ruby's great-niece, Julie Woodard, was outraged that her great-aunt's killer got so much attention in the end, and stated she didn't want him to be remembered as a hero for trying to save his sister's life. Ruby's granddaughter told the parole board, I just don't understand the viciousness of this. In reference to everything the fire had destroyed, she said, She not only died that morning, she also lost most of her history. People change. I'm sure all that time on death row probably did alter Johnson's mind and make him realize how much pain he'd caused. He tried to do a final good deed. That doesn't excuse his murderous actions, but it shows that time truly does change people. Johnson's last words were, everyone has been professional. The state of Indiana asks inmates to leave a final written statement that can be distributed after their executions. Johnson expressed in this statement that he hoped his sister would survive without his liver. He said that he'd be watching her from above. I'm not so sure about that. He was also critical of the parole board for refusing to believe that he'd changed during his time on death row. Johnson thanked people for their prayers and closed it out with, I'll see you on the other side. His last meal was ribs, pulled pork, sautéed mushrooms, soda, and chocolate cheesecake. He wanted Oreo pie, but they were out. Take the mushrooms out of that, and I'd be happy to join him for that meal. His attorneys were there with him, and he ordered them pizza. Mark Allen Weishart had his conviction overturned and was retried for the murder of Marjorie Johnson in 2010. He took a plea deal and got a sentence of 75 years in prison for murder, robbery, burglary, and theft. He was credited with about 55 years served for his time on death row. He might get out someday. He'll be old as fuck when he does, but there's always that chance. Death Row had also given Weishart time to think about his crime. Rather than fight the charges a second time, he pled guilty and gave a full account of what had happened. After he was let out of the courtroom, he was asked if he wanted to comment about the case. He replied, I'm good, thanks. I can't find anything current about Gregory Johnson's sister. I hope she was able to find a donor and live a full life. She was 48 when her brother was executed. Debbie Wrinkles was a 31-year-old woman living in Evansville with her two kids, her brother, and her sister-in-law. Marriage troubles had driven her to move out of the house she shared with her husband. Now, I don't like getting all judgy about things people can't change, but her first red flag should have been this man's name. Matthew Wrinkles. I'm sorry, but where the fuck does that come from? Most last names come from occupations or are based on the father's name. All depends on where you're from. But Wrinkles? That's... goddamn, that's a new one. Debbie had been threatened by her husband twice before, with a gun. He filed for divorce soon after this. His mother became concerned for his mental health and had him committed to a mental hospital where he was evaluated for three days and released. Debbie did the smart thing and got a protective order against her husband. About two weeks after he got out of the hospital, Wrinkles went looking for her. He showed up at her job and two separate friends' houses looking for her, dressed in camouflage. 
He was unsuccessful in his initial attempts at contacting her. Thank God. A provisional hearing was held on July 20th, 1994 to discuss the divorce. They decided to set aside the protective order and give Wrinkles visitation of their kids. It was agreed that Debbie would meet her husband for dinner at a restaurant that night and bring the kids with her. Debbie later changed her mind and didn't go to this meeting. Obviously pissed that his wife had gone back on her word, Wrinkles put his camo gear back on, grabbed a knife and a 357 handgun, and drove to the home of his brother-in-law, Tony Fulkerson. He parked a block away, cut the telephone wires, and kicked the back door in. After all was said and done, three people were dead. Natalie Fulkerson, Tony's wife, was found on the front porch with a gunshot wound to her face. Tony was found in a bedroom with gunshot wounds to his face, chest, back, and hip. His three-year-old son witnessed his murder. Debbie was in the hallway and had died of a single gunshot wound to the chest. What really fucks me up about this one is that one of the kids, who was 14 at the time, watched her dad shoot her mom. Wrinkles apparently also tried to perform CPR on her. After the girl told him she was calling the cops, he ran off. He was later found at his cousin's house with his 357. There is no excuse for this crime. The mitigating circumstances presented at trial were that Wrinkles didn't have a history of criminal conduct. Except threatening his wife with a gun? What, what the fuck, was that not reported or something? He'd also grown up in a dysfunctional family, was emotionally disturbed at the time of the crime, and my personal favorite, he was high on meth when he committed the murders. Because of fucking course he was. You're supposed to scream at a dumpster and then go steal a bike, or take apart a shower at 3 in the morning. Not kill your wife and her family because you served her divorce papers and now can't stand to see her go. The fuck is wrong with you, Mr. Wrinkles? He later claimed that this crime only happened because of his meth addiction and his fear that he wouldn't see his kids again. Kinda hard to see your kids when you're burning in hell for all eternity, but I guess you were pretty methed up at the time and couldn't use logic to figure that one out. Matthew Eric Wrinkles was executed by lethal injection on December 11, 2009. He didn't fight his execution and even refused to request a clemency hearing. He knew he'd fucked up. I don't know how anyone could make peace with a man they witnessed murder their mother, but apparently his daughter Lindsay did. She released a handwritten statement that read in part, Regardless of what my dad has done, he's still my dad. I will go on with my life having peace within me. You are a strong woman, Lindsay. Seriously. My parents have done far less than that, and as far as I'm concerned, they can both go to hell. You have an admirable strength within you, and I truly hope you have had peace in this life. Seth Wrinkles, who was seven at the time of the murders, didn't release a statement, but was there at the prison with his sister during his father's execution. Wrinkles was asked if he had any final words, to which he replied, not at this time. Let's get it done. Let's lock and load. It's plagiarized, but what the hell. I found his final written statement as well. It reads, I wish I knew then what I know now. That is, as Einstein said, only a life lived for others is worth living. 
15 years ago, I took the lives of people I loved, my wife, my friends. I did so after voluntarily taking drugs to the extent that I became an addict of the worst kind. I caused enormous pain to many. I'm not proud of the man I was, but I am no longer that man. In the past 15 years, I have come to grips with the extent of the harm I caused. Although tonight I pay for my actions with my life, it has been the last 15 years that has been the true punishment. Living with the knowledge of the pain I caused was the severest punishment possible. Tonight my children lose their natural father. My friends lose me. My brothers grieve. More victims are created. As Albert Camus said, To kill a man in a paroxysm of passion is understandable. To have him killed by someone else after calm and serious mediation and on the pretext of duty honorably discharged is incomprehensible. His last meal was prime rib, a loaded baked potato, pork chops, steak fries, and two salads with ranch dressing and rolls. The lesson here is don't do meth. Just don't. Nothing good can come out of it aside from dumb tweaker videos on the internet, and those aren't worth fucking up your life. This next one is long and brutal. I've saved it for the end because, what the fuck, there's no way I can follow this with anything. I almost made this case its own episode. During the course of my life, I've heard thousands of true crime stories. One conclusion I've drawn over the years is that the most fucked up shit happens in the Midwest. Sure, Chicago and Detroit have more shootings per week than most places have in a year, but that's just shootings. Usually gang violence. When you get out into the rural parts of Iowa, Wisconsin, and Ohio, that's where you'll find the real nasty shit. Indiana is no different. On the evening of October 10th, 1986, a 17-year-old girl named Alicia went to the gas station to get something for her mom. She didn't take a car as it was only two blocks away from her home. On her way back, she encountered a man in a mask who had a gun. The strange man demanded money from her. After she said she had no money, he grabbed her and threw her into a garage before stripping her of her clothes and tying her up with electrical wire. This was only the beginning of Alicia's nightmare. To prevent the young woman from screaming, the man stuffed some of her clothes into her mouth and put her jeans over her head to act as a blindfold. To temporarily keep her from escaping, he put heavy bags on her back. When he returned, he put Alicia into his van and drove for a few minutes. Once they stopped, he took her into a house and put her on a mattress that was laying on the floor. Throughout this endeavor, the strange man repeatedly reminded her not to scream, otherwise he would kill her. Being the absolute gentleman that he was, the man asked her name and where she lived. He even untied her. This was done so that he could take pictures. Her head was kept covered, and then, as I'm sure you probably guessed, he raped her. With a gun to her head. He again told her not to scream. At some point during or after this first assault, the man put a chain around her neck and fastened it to the bed. He also cuffed her hands to the side of the bed and tied her feet together with a rope. After tying Alicia up, he left for about 15 minutes. 
Upon his return, he told the girl that he'd gone back to the garage to pick up her clothes and the other items she'd dropped. After raping her a second time, he put duct tape over her eyes, put toilet paper in her mouth, and then taped her mouth shut. I don't know if any of you have ever eaten a square of toilet paper, but that shit is torturous. Parachutes are fucking gross. If you know, you know. What we have here, my friends, is a sick motherfucker. The next day, Alicia's attacker forced her to perform oral sex on him. When he was finished, he handcuffed her arms to the bed again and cuffed her ankles together. I have to say, Alicia has a very strong will to live. She figured out that it was daytime and scooted the bed frame she was chained to toward the doorway. She then chewed through the tape over her mouth and began screaming. Unfortunately, the only person who heard her screams was her captor. He came back into the room and threw a blanket over her head before telling her she wasn't supposed to scream. Her punishment for this misdeed was to be slapped, have her back cut with a knife, have one of her fingernails cut off, and have some of her hair cut as well. Alicia was told that if she tried to escape again, the man would kill her. This threat was punctuated by the gun being placed against her head. The man clicked it to make his point. While cutting off her hair, he told Alicia that he was putting it into a scrapbook full of hair from other women he had raped. I am fucking struggling with this one. God damn. In one final act of absolute depravity for the day, he super glued her eyes shut. Take a minute and think about that. Super glue in the eyes, so she couldn't look at him anymore. This was followed by more tape on her eyes and toilet paper in her mouth. So who the fuck is this guy? I don't even want to acknowledge that he has a name and is a human being, because he's not. He's subhuman garbage, and I haven't even gotten to the murder yet. I can't really find anything on him other than his name. Bill Benefield Jr. He's a creepy-ass ginger guy that definitely gives off pedo vibes. Google him, or check my Instagram. I don't know what has to happen to a person to make them do these kinds of things to a 17-year-old girl, and quite frankly, I don't really want to. Benefiel eventually decided that Alicia needed to eat something and fed her a sandwich. The young woman was able to determine what day it was by listening to the radio. By October 13th, three days after she'd been kidnapped, she hadn't slept at all. Benefield raped her every day and threatened her life constantly. Alicia was held captive for four months. We've all heard the stories of people like Elizabeth Smart, Amanda Berry, and Elizabeth Fritzel. Sometimes the missing are found alive years later, but the horror they have to experience on a daily basis makes every passing minute feel like an eternity. Over the course of her captivity, Alicia was raped more than 64 times. That's not a rough estimate. That's the number where she lost count. On October 30th, Benefiel told her that they were going to have a Halloween party. This party ended up being more torture for this poor girl. Her chest and the side of her neck were cut with Benefiel's knife. In addition to this, he stuck his gun inside her and raped her anally. This is abhorrent. 
but I want you to remember just how fucked up this guy is. It'll be important later. For the first two months of her captivity, Alicia's eyes were glued shut and also taped. And no, I don't mean that he just kept them constantly covered. Benefiel would repeatedly pry her eyes open and then glue them shut again. She was deprived of food, water, and use of the bathroom. She was only given a baked potato and a glass of water per day. At one point, Benefiel made Alicia hold the bullets to his gun and told her that her name was on one of them. He also told her that she wouldn't be able to escape because his dogs would attack her. Alicia could hear the dogs outside and believed him. Alicia wasn't allowed to bathe alone, but Benefiel at least kept her clean. The majority of the time, she was chained to the bed. She was asked on multiple occasions whether she wanted to die quickly or slowly. When she replied quickly, Benefiel told her that her death would be slow and painful. Benefiel abused Alicia so badly that there came a point where she needed to be taken to the hospital. On December 9th, her eyes were opened, the tape over them was removed, and she was able to see her assailant clearly for the first time. He threatened her with the gun again, and they made their way out to his van. Benefiel instructed her to tell the hospital staff that her name was Mary Benefiel and that she was 18 years old. For some fucking reason, he made her drive to the hospital despite her eyes being in such rough shape. When they arrived, he threatened her again and told her that if she said anything about what was really going on, he'd kill everyone there. Alicia was examined by a nurse and a doctor. She was asked what was wrong with her eyes but couldn't form a quick enough response. Benefiel told them that she'd been crying a lot. Alicia was obviously terrified because of her assailant's threats. She didn't tell anyone what was actually going on. I find it incredibly hard to believe that these people couldn't tell something was up. A young girl with vaginal bleeding, severely injured eyes, too afraid to speak, and an older man who's quick to jump in and talk for her whenever he can. That's fucking common sense, but this is the 80s. After the examination, the doctor told Alicia that she was pregnant and that she shouldn't have intercourse for three weeks. Benefiel didn't follow the doctor's recommendation. He raped Alicia again the day after their hospital visit. He also decided to move her from the house they'd been staying in to one across the street. She was immediately chained to the bed in this new house and then raped. Alicia realized at this point that Benefiel was using police scanners to determine which houses he could burglarize. I guess he knew police codes and was able to figure out when events happened at certain houses that would leave them unoccupied? I, I don't know. It sounds like some tweaker bullshit to me. On January 26, 1987, after being held captive for over three months, Alicia thought she heard noises coming from the basement. Benefiel eventually told her that he had someone else in the house with him. The next night, Alicia saw the young woman for the first time. Her name was Dolores Wells. When Alicia first saw her, she was handcuffed and laying on a waterbed with paper towels in her mouth. 
What the fuck is this guy's fascination with paper products in the mouth? That has to be the sadism coming out. Shit's making me gag just thinking about it. Benefiel told Alicia not to speak to Dolores, so she didn't. On February 4th, Benefiel made Alicia come into the room with him and watch him assault Dolores. He beat her with his fists as well as an electrical cord. Alicia saw Dolores later on and noted that she was covered in welts and bruises and that her face was swollen and had been beaten severely. On another occasion, Benefiel used the same tactics on Dolores as he had on Alicia, asking her how she wanted to die, and upon being told that she wanted to die quickly, informing her that her death would be slow and painful. It is clear to me that this man is not right in the head. How someone can treat other humans like this is just... What the fuck? Three days later, Benefiel left for a couple hours and returned covered in mud with blisters on his hands. He told Alicia that he had been out digging a grave big enough for two people. She knew then that he was going to kill her and Dolores. Later on that day, he made Alicia come into Dolores' room with him and watch as he put super glue in her nose and pinched it shut. Toilet paper was also put into her mouth again before he taped it shut. At this point, Dolores started to squirm. She couldn't breathe. Alicia left the room at this time. As he'd done many times before, Benefiel chained Alicia to the bed and left her alone. Things went silent in the house. On the morning of February 11, 1987, Benefiel made it clear to Alicia that the police were coming for him. He began drilling holes in the floor and attempting to make a space to put the girl so they wouldn't find her. He told her to get everything that had her name on it together. She didn't fit under the floor, so Benefiel shoved her into a crawl space inside the attic and told her not to make a sound. Dude must have had a crazy intuition because right after this, the cops knocked on his door. They had a warrant. Benefiel played dumb at first, saying he didn't know who they were looking for. This was short-lived, though. He outed himself and told them that Alicia was in the crawl space. When the police found her and got her out, she told them that she was there of her own free will. Think about that for a minute. Even with the police present, she was so afraid of this man that she wouldn't tell them the truth. It wasn't until they took her to the hospital that she finally told them what had actually happened. A consequent search of Benefiel's van found a rake, a shovel, a mask, rope, a pocket knife, and 22 caliber rifle shells. I think they mean bullets. As far as I'm aware, shotguns are the only things with shells, but maybe I'm not as gun literate as I'd like to think. Point is, he had a van full of evidence. Unfortunately, only one of Benefiel's captives made it out with her life. Dolores Wells was not so lucky. That day in early February when he'd made Alicia watch him superglue her nose shut, she died. Not from the superglue. She had somehow managed to make it through that hell long enough for Benefiel to take her out to an area with trees and savagely murder her. According to what the sick bastard himself told Alicia, he had taken Dolores out and tied her arms to one tree and her legs to another before wrapping duct tape around her head and suffocating her. After this, he popped her neck to make sure she was dead. He then buried her in the same location she'd been killed. 
all of this because according to him she knew too much someone else apparently knew too much as well a confidential informant told police that he knew where the missing girl they were looking for was alicia had been reported missing on october 11th this informant somehow found out that benefiel had her and told police about it in early january why the fuck did it take a month for them to follow up on this? This informant told them that Benefiel had access to four different houses on the same street. Because of this man's information, the police were able to get a search warrant and later found Alicia. The autopsy performed on Dolores showed internal and external injuries to her vagina and anus, which indicated a brutal rape. The pathologist concluded that she had been raped before her death. The injuries were fresh, and her ultimate cause of death was asphyxia. Evidence was found in one of Benefield's houses, including a piece of duct tape with eyelashes and other hairs that they determined to be from Dolores. Other hair found in the trash at the house matched Benefield. This, combined with Alicia's harrowing tale of the last four months, would be enough to get Benefield charged and convicted of murder, rape, and criminal confinement. Believe it or not, Benefield tried to appeal on the grounds that he should have been found incompetent to stand trial. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but being mentally disturbed is not the same thing as being legally insane. Plenty of truly fucked up people are found competent to stand trial. This one is no different. But he tried anyway to get the court to believe that he was unable to assist his lawyers during the trial. He had been evaluated by two doctors and determined to be fully competent. His choice to not assist his counsel was just that, a choice. There was a point during the trial when he testified in his own defense. After this, there was a short recess, and he refused to come back into the courtroom, and then claimed that his right to be present during his trial was violated. This man is an overgrown child, for real. Benefiel got a well-deserved death sentence. Pretty sure anyone who was at the trial and had to hear Alicia's testimony would have wanted to inject him themselves. But as you're probably aware, not everyone agrees with capital punishment. In this case, those taking Benefield's side claimed that not enough was done to prove how shaky his mental health was. Evidence was brought out in court about his childhood that could have explained some of his issues, but no one on the jury thought it was enough to spare him. He got what was coming to him. Most people could see that. The Sisters of Providence held a prayer service for him at the Church of the Immaculate Conception, which about 50 people attended. In addition to praying for Benefiel, and also for the families of Alicia and Dolores, they prayed to, get this, bring an end to the death penalty. One of the sisters said that the death penalty is a violent act. How does killing a person tell people that killing is wrong? Maybe it doesn't, but it ensures that the condemned person will never get the chance to kill again. It's a punishment for the ultimate crime. Some criminals cannot and do not deserve to be rehabilitated. Sexual predators are on that list for me. While the Sisters of Providence didn't condone his crime, they made sure to show their support for the man himself. Gotta love religion, love thy neighbor and all that good stuff. 
even if your neighbor kidnapped and tortured two innocent girls. I want you to think about this for a minute. These people were praying for the soul of a man who repeatedly superglued a girl's eyes shut, put a loaded gun inside her, and made her watch him brutalize another girl. I'm sorry, but that man does not have a soul to pray for. He deserved to die for his crimes. Bill Benefield Jr. was executed by lethal injection on April 21, 2005. He sat on death row for the same length of time that the girl he murdered had been alive. Indiana's policy at the time was that the condemned got to choose who witnessed the execution. Marge Hagen, Dolores' mother, wanted to be there but wasn't allowed. She made the trip to be near the prison anyway. Dolores Wells was a lot of things. A daughter, a sister, and a mother. Her son was only two when Benefield took his mom away from him. His only memories of her came from what other people told him. But he went on to serve his country. I hope he's out there living his best life and can sleep peacefully knowing the son of a bitch who took his mother away is dead. I've purposely left Alicia's last name out of this to give her a little bit of privacy. It's easy to find, but I don't see a reason to include it. This poor woman has gone through enough. I did a quick Google search to see if she's been in the media since her ordeal, but she hasn't. I respect that. I hope wherever she is, she's been able to cope with what happened and build herself a good life. She deserves it. Benefield was asked if he had any last words, to which he replied, No, let's get this over with. Let's do it. His last meal was one large pizza with sausage, pepperoni, mushrooms, onions, green peppers, black olives, and tomatoes. One 12-inch Italian beef sandwich with cheese. Four pints of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Butter pecan, cherry Garcia, New York super fudge chunk, and oatmeal cookie chunk. One Dutch apple pie. Six cans of RC Cola. And six cans of Pepsi. Can't put a man to death if he's already died of diabetes, I guess. I think that's gonna do it for Indiana. I definitely need an Ajax shower after this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a rumble or a rating wherever you found me. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMailPod. I'll be back next week with an episode about another Midwest state. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.